Hello, this is Dr. Rachel Good, and today we'll be mapping food insecurity and binge eating on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix Special Nutrition Therapy Series, where we're going to dive into the approaches, practices, dietary theories, healing foods, and critical issues that have been both used and considered in the most successful practices across the globe and throughout history. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. The 15-Minute Matrix is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons which highlight the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition, and that's the functional matrix. The functional nutrition matrix reminds us of three very important factors in our clinical care, and that is everything is connected, we are all unique, and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Rachel Good. Dr. Rachel Good is an assistant professor at the School of Social Work and in the Center for Eating Disorder Excellence at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's the principal investigator of the Living Free Lab, a research group that develops, implements, and evaluates interventions to prevent and treat binge eating and obesity in African Americans and those experiencing poverty. Dr. Good, welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Thank you, Andrea. I'm very excited to be here. Dr. Good, the work you're doing is really critical in developing, implementing, and evaluating interventions to address racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic disparities in obesity and eating disorders. And you've been making some important connections between food insecurities and binge eating. I'm wondering if you can start us out by speaking a bit into food insecurities to shed a light on that reality for so many people. I know it's maybe surprising, but approximately 11% of the U.S. population struggles with food insecurity. And so of that 11%, another 4 to 7% struggle with very low food security, meaning that there are children in the home who people are concerned may not have a meal or may not have enough to eat. And so because of that, we've seen these associations, right, between food insecurity and obesity. And then what we're realizing is that food insecurity just might impact your general experience around eating anyway. And so we've noticed that food insecurity may also impact binge eating, that ability of when you don't feel like you have control over your eating episode. So you lose control. And so people may want to stop eating, but they can't. And so we've always thought that relationship you know, it was more related to the desire you're pursuing thinness, you might be engaging in dieting. But in recent years, we have noticed that the experience of poverty and specifically food insecurity impacts that relationship more than we realize. So there's a lot more to uncover on how we can develop interventions to really help this population who's managing this reality. 
Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, your mechanisms of satiety and hunger are probably also dysregulated. So I'm wondering if we even go back historically, where did we get to that 11%? When in history did that come into being? To be honest, I don't know when that happened. But so every year or so, the USDA, they do a survey to examine household food security in the United States. So every couple of years, if I'm being honest. So their last survey was in 2018. And so it was in that survey that we were able to find that data. So I can imagine, though, with COVID-19, what we've been experiencing as people have been you know, managing the pandemic, that number has gone up, right? It might be even higher than we anticipate. Yeah. And this is one of the things that I think is really challenging in the realms of nutrition, functional nutrition, functional medicine. I mean, first of all, one of my goals is to make this work that we do more accessible to people who may not even have access to food. Like nutrition isn't about shopping at Whole Foods. When we're talking about food insecurity, we're talking about having food. And so how do we shift that conversation to address food insecurity? And then I want to dive more into the connection with binge eating and the social work interventions. But how do we shift our conversation or how do you advise we as nutritionists shift our understanding of access to food? Right. I think it's important to consider the environment where people live and reside and what those environments possess and what individuals have access to. And so we talk about, I know that you are familiar with the term of food deserts, yes. but even we've started talking about things as a food swamps, right? Areas that are overrun with fast food restaurants, places that you know may provide food, but may not always be composed of meals that would meet all the nutritional needs that individuals may have. And just realizing that our food environments are definitely not created equal. And so how can we help individuals with consideration to what they have access to in their environment and how we can support them from that place to begin to make shifts in their eating behaviors? Yeah, that's so important. I really want to underscore what you said there. Are we looking at certain populations of people when we look at that 11% or more than 11%? Are we looking at primarily in terms of socioeconomic status or racial status? Who's falling into that 11 or more percent so we can bring our awareness there? Sure, sure. So what we've seen in the research is that being lower age, so younger, being unmarried, and then being Black, African-American, or Latinx race or ethnicity are associated with those numbers with food insufficiency. Yeah, really important that we look at that, bring our awareness there, like I said. So the triggering events that might lead to that, I'm assuming it's job status, community, family. What else should we be thinking about in terms of what leads people to food insecurity? I think we also just need to think about people's access to that emergency fund resource when you lose, you know, maybe the job or you lose, you know, something that was a significant contributor to your home, the financial resources of your home. Often what we see is that sometimes 
people may not have that emergency fund or that cushion built up. And so when individuals are in that situation, you know, that resource was that what really kept them afloat. And without it, there's not really a backup. And so recognizing that for so many, you know, we are very dependent <laughs> on our jobs, our sources of income. And I think many of us are paychecks away from being in this situation. I think that's the thing that is important to keep in mind food insufficiency. We're all very vulnerable, especially for those who don't have a lot of resources saved up. And again, I think many Americans would fall into that risk. Yeah. And it it makes me think of just like how getting to this point has been a series of traumas, big and little, that in order to, especially from your vantage point, Dr. Good, to help people move out of that, it's that recognition of the many, many things that led to this tipping point. Yes, yes, definitely. So bring us into this connection that you've been exploring with the food insecurity and the binge eating a bit more. So what we're seeing is that individuals who experience food insufficiency or insecurity, they may experience periods of feast or famine, right? So there are going to be times when their food intake might decrease due to periods of scarcity and it might increase due to periods of food abundance. And so I think one of the easiest models to understand this is to examine the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. So individuals participating in SNAP, as it's otherwise called for short, they receive benefits once per month. And so my research lab, we just did a study where we were interviewing individuals about what happened during that period, because usually there was about three weeks of the month where individuals had access to food, but there was this one week period where it just didn't stretch. And so what we saw individuals doing, skipping meals, you know, trying to make it all day, you know, trying to prioritize feeding children, eating, you know, very limited amounts. And so as you can imagine, that period of deprivation increased. And what we know when we think about eating disorders, but mostly it's in the context of dieting, when individuals are doing that for like trying to attain thinness, that sets them up to have a binge eating episode. And we see that replicated in this situation as well, even though it really, thinness isn't the main factor in this situation. And is it mostly women who are experiencing the binge eating patterns? You know what? If I'm being honest, I don't think there's a gender. Gender has isn't one of the main factors, the predictors. It's more just the being in that state and experience. We see that in adults, period. I think irrespective of gender. Interesting. You know, I feel like I just want to burst into tears thinking about the human condition. And as I look at the functional nutrition matrix, and I know from my understanding of biology and physiology, where we have so many deficiencies when we don't have access to food, we don't have access to nutrition, and the kind of food that we have access to isn't even giving us nutrition. And it makes me move back to this idea of like, non-negotiables. And that's our tier one. I always talk through tier one is non-negotiables. Tier two is deficiency to sufficiency. Tier three is dismantling the dysfunction, right? So if we went to tier three, the dysfunction, that might be what results in what we might call obesity, right or wrong. 
what we might call the binge eating. However, if we go back to tier two, the deficiency, and we go back to tier one, the non-negotiable, food is a non-negotiable. Nutrition is a non-negotiable, right? And I just think about all the things that are happening to the body, physiologically, psychologically, when we can't feed it. And it just, it makes me want to weep. Yes. You see our bodies doing all they can to keep you alive, right? To do all they can. And we think about all we have done. Oh my, (laughs) you know, on purpose, not on purpose, but our bodies are a repository of trauma, right? They hold so much trauma that we have had to inflict and we have been forced to manage. And so you can imagine with food, our bodies were built. You know, you think historically when we didn't have these grocery stores and we were in periods where individuals had to go seasons where there wasn't food, right? They were hunting. Our bodies were able to survive. And that's what I think we notice. We see these feast and famine periods, how our bodies were meant to, they know how to adapt in that way. But it's just heartbreaking to know that now it doesn't have to be like that. And we could make it so that it is a non-negotiable, just like you said, Andrea, and that we all have access to the food we need. And we have not done that. Yeah. Two things come to mind, Dr. Good. One is that the body is incredibly resilient. Like, wow, what we've lived through, what we continue to live through constantly. And those series of traumas, as you said, and the insults that we experience. And these insults and these traumas are epigenetic factors. They are shifting gene expression on and off for future generations. And so as we experience a percentage of the population, an increasing percentage that is experiencing both food insecurities and binge eating, we're setting up our future generations in certain ways that we all need to be aware of. Mm. And see, we're not thinking about it on that level yet, Andrea, and we should. Well, that's why we all come together to do the work, right? I love the research you're doing, and I love that you're looking at it through a social work perspective, and that's not my perspective. But the fact that we can come together and have this conversation from our different lenses is where I also feel like resolutions come to light That said, I know you have some resolutions, so can we move into some of what you and your teams have been thinking about in terms of what do we do about this combination of food insecurity and binge eating and the impact it's having on populations? We're still very much in progress (laughs) with solutions, very much in progress and really thinking through. So right now, I honestly think our teams, we're doing a lot of listening. We really are in positioning ourselves to really understand what this experience is like. And, you know, easy answers would be the things that somehow it seems the hardest for us to do is to make sure that everyone has food access. But one of the things we're also noticing is finding a way to help people when this is possible to begin to eat regularly throughout the day, because people have mechanisms of survival, right? And some of that might be skipping meals. But if there was a way that we could support, whether it be, I know some of our researchers have been coming up with boxes of food and and having interventions where they send that to homes, right? And so we finance just a program where they get boxes sent to the home. And then once that food is available, then we can begin to have the discussion 
on how can we get people to eat regularly throughout the day? You know, because some of us miss episodes, eating episodes, because we're, you know, we're working jobs that don't really provide us opportunities to take breaks, or we're used to just going so long without really engaging and listening to those internal signals of hunger and satiety. So a lot of our research helps people to begin to start listening again and start using that as valuable information to not ignore and to work alongside your body to begin to create those changes in your eating behaviors. That's a huge takeaway. I mean, I know you said you're just at the beginning of the work and the research, but I think that first of all, we could all benefit from that tuning in. I think we are tuned out so much, but then taking it to that level of education and illumination for people where that might shift out of some of the behaviors that ultimately aren't serving them or their families is really critical. So I just want to kind of celebrate that piece right there. I agree. It's fun for me to see the light bulbs come on and people realize, oh, because we're born knowing how to eat and we become socialized out of that. It's interesting when you see babies, babies do this. They instinctively know how to respond when they're hungry and how to stop their food consumption when they do not want anymore. And then adults, we step in (laughs) and complicate the whole thing, you know, and they begin to unlearn all of that. And we go on in our country and it's just important to kind of reconnect with that process again that was built to help us function and survive. And so I'm excited to be able to participate in this work. Yeah. My final question for you, Dr. Good, you know, I have the opportunity to train thousands of functional nutrition counselors each and every year. And I've been speaking to these communities about getting out there, volunteering, doing the work. Yes, you can get paid to do the work you do. And there's also more time in the day, especially if you make it, to serve and support and feel the goodness of helping people. What do you wish we could do (laughs) to support you and your work and the people you're serving more? First of all, I just want to thank the people that you get to serve through your podcast and who get to have the chance to help improve the functional nutrition of the people in this world, in this country. And it's this great honor. I think there's so much, what I found, again, in people in my studies, how do you bring the information that you all know and how do you package it in a way that can be accessible to people at all different educational levels, at all different abilities to maybe financially make some of the differences. Like, and I, I know I find myself in some of my studies having to break down nutrition knowledge into bite-sized manageable pieces that people can really implement. And so any additional support and work to kind of customize and tailor this knowledge to meet the needs of those who might be at most marginalized would be welcomed. And we really continue to need ways to just get this knowledge into the hands of those who may have not really had this training and had been able to have this available to them. Yeah, brilliant. You're speaking my language. I'm nodding my head. I have a big smile on my face. That is truly the work of functional nutrition, that we understand who we're talking to and we tailor, we bio-individually tailor our recommendations to the needs of that person. So such brilliant work, Dr. Good. And thank you again for sharing your time with us and allowing us to come into your world for a little bit. 
Oh, you are welcome, Andrea. Thank you. The 15-Minute Matrix is hosted and produced by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The podcast is edited and mixed by Brian Paik of Pacific Audio, and special thanks to Natalie Merrill, Alia Hale, Pamela Geismar, and Rowan Bradley for their support in making the 15-Minute Matrix possible. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to see the completed functional nutrition matrix that accompanies today's or any episode, be sure to head over to the podcast website. Again, that's 15minutematrix.com. We love when you share our episodes with your friends and colleagues, leave a review and rate the show. That helps us to grow our collective message that functional nutrition is the future of healthcare. Also, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Functional Nutrition Alliance, and you can follow me at Andrea Nakayama. And if you or someone you know is interested in becoming a functional nutrition counselor, head over to fxnutrition.com to learn more about our full body systems program. Full Body Systems is our 10-month immersion course where you'll learn the systems-based approach to addressing the root causes of your clients' issues through client education, diet, and lifestyle modification. Again, you can always learn more at fxnutrition.com.